This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Not too long ago, we had an episode on Ida Tarbell. We particularly talked about her investigative reporting into John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And something we mentioned in that episode is that Rockefeller later on tried to revise his public image from ruthless robber baron to philanthropist and family man, and he did that with the help of a man named Ivy Ledbetter Lee. Ivy Lee was one of the founders of the fields of public relations and crisis communications, although for a lot of folks, I think the more familiar name is probably Edward Bernays. Some of this may be because Bernays' career was longer and more recent. Ivy Lee was the older of the two of them by only about 15 years, but he died in 1934, while Bernays lived all the way until 1995. Uh, Bernays was also a lot more self-promotional, which may play into it, too. Like, we've had listener requests for Edward Bernays, but not really for Ivy Lee. Some people might also point to the scandals that unfolded at the end of Lee's career as a reason why he's not as well-known today. We will be talking about those scandals, but honestly, big chunks of Bernays' career were pretty scandalous also, so... (laughs) I mean, I feel like scandal often makes people more memorable, so that one doesn't yeah. totally hold water for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think in particular, we'll, we'll be talking more about the end of Lee's career, of course, at the end of the episode, but uh, there are parts of it that I can kind of see why if you are in the field of public relations, you might not want to talk about that as 
part of the world of one of the founders of your field. So anyway, even though Edward Bernays probably has more general name recognition today, Ivy Lee's approach to public relations was really revolutionary for the time, and he helped establish a lot of the practices that still exist in the field today. And the work that he did as a publicist continues to have a lot of influence on the world that we're living in now. So Ivy Ledbetter Lee was born on July 16, 1877, in Cedartown, Georgia. He was the oldest of six children born to the Reverend James Wideman Lee, who was a Methodist minister, and Emma Eufala Ledbetter. Ivy grew up in Atlanta and St. Louis as his father was transferred among various Methodist churches in those two cities. Ivy Lee studied at Emory College for two years before transferring to Princeton, and at Princeton, one of his mentors was future U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. Lee studied economics, and one of his yearbooks described him this way, quote, what he doesn't know about trusts is not worth knowing. Lee worked for the campus newspapers at both schools and as a football correspondent for other college and university newspapers. He also helped pay for school as a campus correspondent for newspapers all over the northeastern U.S. and eventually for the Associated Press. He reported several exclusive stories thanks to former President Grover Cleveland, who had retired to Princeton. This included getting a statement from Cleveland after the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor in 1898. That was also the year that Lee graduated from Princeton with honors. He used a $500 debate prize to pay for some time at Harvard Law School, but he used up that money pretty quickly. After that, he moved to New York, and from 1899 to 1903, he worked as a journalist for several New York newspapers, and he used some of his income from that to study political science at Columbia University. During those years in New York, he also married Cornelia Bartlett Bigelow, and they went on to have three children. Those were Alice, James II, and Ivy Jr. But, as is the case today, There wasn't a lot of money in reporting, especially for people who were just starting their careers. So in 1903, Lee decided to go into public relations. Of course, people have been using information to try to influence people's opinions and perceptions for pretty much as long as there have been societies. But this was in the earliest years of public relations as a field. The term public relations to describe relationships between organizations or influential people and the public and the effective management of those relationships was first used in writing in 1898. Lee used a range of terms to describe what he did, including publicity, which has a slightly different connotation today. Lee started out as publicity manager for the New York Citizens Union, backing the re-election campaign of Mayor Seth Lowe. The Citizens Union was trying to unseat New York's immensely powerful Tammany Hall political machine. Although Lowe had managed to defeat the Tammany candidate in the earlier election, this time around, he was defeated. After this, Lee went to work for the Democratic National Committee during the 1904 presidential campaign. He represented Alton B. Parker in his race against the incumbent Theodore Roosevelt. Of course, Parker lost this election as well. Although Lee's candidate lost both elections, during these campaigns, he started developing techniques that would become a huge part of his career. For example, on the Lowe campaign, he wrote a book called City for the People, The Best Administration New York Ever Had. 
This book explained the various reforms that Lowe had implemented, as well as the many scandals of his predecessor, Tammany politician Robert A. Van Wyck. It used clear, straightforward language while also using lots of bold type, underlines, and eye-catching headlines to emphasize the points of the book. Similarly, during the Parker campaign, Lee and his colleague George Parker, who was no relation to the candidate, created a two-sided card. This was headlined, The President's Dream of War on one side and Judge Parker's Plea for Peace on the other. The war side quoted Roosevelt, quote, if we ever grow to regard peace as a permanent condition and feel that we can afford to let the keen, fearless, virile qualities of heart and mind and body sink into disuse, we will prepare the way for inevitable and shameful disaster in the future. Then the peace side had a quote from Parker that began, quote, the display of great military armaments may please the eye and for the moment excite the pride of the citizen, but it cannot bring to the country the brains, brawn, and muscle of a single immigrant, nor reduce the investment here of a dollar of capital. After the presidential campaign was over, Ivy Lee and George Parker started one of the first formal PR firms in the U.S., in 1906, Lee wrote a Declaration of Principles, which read in part, quote, This is not a secret press bureau. All our work is done in the open. We aim to supply news. This is not an advertising agency. If you think any of our matter ought properly go to your business office, do not use it. Our matter is accurate. Further details on any subject treated will be supplied promptly, and any editor will be assisted most cheerfully in verifying directly any statement of fact. In brief, our plan is, frankly and openly, on behalf of business concerns and public institutions, to supply the press and public of the United States prompt and accurate information concerning subjects which it is of value and interest to the public to know about. I send out only matter every detail of which I am willing to assist any editor in verifying for himself. Lee didn't necessarily always live up to these ideals in terms of things like transparency and accuracy. We will get to that. Over time, he also recognized that there were some limits to what he could fix for his clients if their behavior was truly egregious. So at least to an extent, he tried to counsel his clients to do better. And then he publicized those improvements to try to gain or regain the public's trust. A lot of this sounds very basic today, but at the time, it was groundbreaking. By the late 19th century, the relationship between big businesses and the public was, broadly speaking, not good. In 1882, a reporter from the New York Times was asking railroad magnate William H. Vanderbilt about possible fare reductions and express service. When Vanderbilt seemed to be complaining about how little money he made off of passengers as compared to freight service, the reporter asked, quote, but don't you run it for the public benefit? And Vanderbilt answered, the public be damned. Vanderbilt later said his comments had been misreported and misrepresented, but to a lot of the American public, that quote really summed up the worldview of industries and industrialists. And then on top of that perception that industries just did not care about the public, a lot of businesses routinely refused to speak to reporters. Instead, they would try to keep any accidents or other incidents from becoming public knowledge. So just as an example... 
If passengers were killed in a railroad accident, the railroad would usually try to cover it up. They would refuse to give interviews, bar reporters from the accident site, maybe even bribe them to keep quiet with some free train tickets. So we're going to get into the specifics of how Lee worked with his clients after we pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ivy Lee's public relations career developed toward the end of the progressive era in the United States, and it was influenced by that era's ideals of civic engagement and corporate accountability. It was also influenced by his upbringing as the son of a Methodist minister and his father's approach to his ministry specifically. That included things like trying to bridge the gulf between evolutionists and creationists and a proposal that Ivy's father made to create a cathedral of cooperation in Atlanta that was meant to bring together Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. At the same time, though, Ivy Lee was usually working on behalf of businesses and industries and industrialists, including some of the most maligned industries in the United States. Like the coal industry. In 1906, George F. Baer, president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, hired Lee to represent the anthracite coal industry. The railroad and coal industries were deeply connected, and a few years earlier, during the coal strike of 1902, the industries had followed their typical pattern of refusing to talk to reporters. Meanwhile, labor organizers and striking workers had happily given interviews, garnering a lot of sympathy as they talked very candidly about low pay, long hours, and difficult and dangerous working conditions. So, when another strike was developing in 1906, Bear and his colleagues wanted to have somebody on their side, and that someone was Ivy Lee. One of his first steps was to publicly assure the press that the coal operators would be providing them with all possible information. That declaration of principles that we read before the break was something he sent to newspapers as part of Lee's work with the coal mines. Soon, he was also working for the railroads. On October 28, 1906, a train ran off a drawbridge outside of Atlantic City, New Jersey, and more than 50 people drowned. Lee issued a statement to the press, which began, quote, On account of the difficulty of raising the trucks of the cars out of the water, the railroad officials have not been able to discover the cause of the accident. They have ascertained, however, that there was no defect in either the drawbridge or its mechanism to cause the derailment. The bridge, both stationary and movable parts, is of the most approved modern type. This is usually cited as the first modern press release. The rest of this release offered a lot of reassurances that the company was working to raise the wrecked cars from the water and to conduct a thorough investigation. The New York Times printed this release without any kind of alteration, without any analysis or questioning of its contents. 
that was pretty revolutionary, that somebody could just send a statement on behalf of the company and it would just be printed in whole cloth. Went right to print. In addition to this release, Lee also advised railroad officials to be available to the press with industry experts on hand. He arranged for reporters to travel to the accident site by train paid for by the company. In spite of this release's reassurances, though, the likely cause of this accident was a problem with the drawbridge mechanism, which had not reconnected itself properly after the last time the bridge had opened. Lee also tried to improve the railroad industry's public image beyond just dealing with the aftermath of specific accidents. He encouraged the railroads to make safety improvements and to increase employees' pay, at least to the extent that it would make a favorable impression on the public. He also provided them with positive media coverage. For example, he wrote an article for Moody's in 1907 that detailed all kinds of philanthropic efforts, from creating public parks to establishing scholarship funds. Railroads really had funded all these projects, but Lee didn't disclose that they had also paid him to write the article. Lee's influence trickled through the railroad industry, and in 1908, he became part of the Pennsylvania Railroad's Publicity Bureau. Eventually, he became an executive assistant to the railroad president, where he tried to have a positive influence on the railroad's policies. His PR efforts included things like getting the public to accept an increase in fares, which is something he also did for the New York City subway. In 1910, Ivy Lee took a three-year break from public relations, making a brief foray into international investment banking. That was something he thought was going to have an increasing influence on society. He went to England to open up investment offices in London and then Paris and Berlin, and he lectured at the London School of Economics in 1911 and 1912. But he ultimately returned to the U.S. and to his work as a publicist. A lot of Lee's PR work so far had involved industries that were inherently pretty disliked and distrusted by a lot of the American public. But in 1914, he took on a job that would be particularly controversial for a family that was deeply reviled. The previous year, about 10,000 miners in Colorado had gone on strike in an effort to get better pay and working conditions and recognition of their union through the United Mine Workers of America, The Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, or CF&I, had evicted the striking workers from the company towns where they lived, and then the striking workers had started living in tent cities. Months later, on April 19, 1914, the Colorado National Guard and private security surrounded one of these camps in Ludlow, Colorado. And for unclear reasons, they opened fire. 25 people were killed, including two women and 11 children who had been sheltering in a pit dug under the tents. This sparked 10 days of violence in which about 50 people died. This was part of a long and violent labor uprising known as the Colorado Coalfield War. John D. Rockefeller Jr. owned about 40% of the CF&I, and the Rockefeller family already had a reputation for ruthlessness, something we talked about in that earlier episode on Ida Tarbell. So after this, John Jr. became the public's biggest target. The union and the striking workers already had their own PR team who popularized the name Ludlow Massacre for the violence of April 19th. 
Newspaper editor Arthur Brisbane was a friend of Rockefeller's and told him he knew somebody who could help, that somebody was Ivy Lee. So Lee embarked on a comprehensive public relations plan on behalf of Rockefeller and the CFNI. In addition to other mailings, interviews, and newspaper and magazine articles, this campaign focused on a series of 19 printed bulletins. These were later compiled into a collection called The Struggle in Colorado for Industrial Freedom. Yeah, they're they're presented as uh, Series 1 and Series 2, and they have a whole lot of overlap between them in those two collections. These bulletins laid out the mining industry's views from a number of angles. Some of them outlined the same kinds of anti-union arguments that still circulate today, stuff like the United Mine Workers being an outside organization that was acting against the interest of the workers themselves, that most of the workers didn't want to be in the union, and that mine workers in Colorado were paid more than mine workers in any other state, and therefore they did not need a union. Here is a quote as an example. Quote, The fight of the Colorado coal mine managers is not against union labor. The principle of collective bargaining is not at stake. The struggle in Colorado is against the domination of a particular organization, the United Mine Workers of America. It's sort of the, we don't mind if our workers unionize, just not that union. And some of the information in these bulletins was factual on the surface, but it was presented in a deceptive way. One is called How Colorado Editors View the Coal Strike. This bulletin acknowledged that some of the striking workers' demands were things they were entitled to under Colorado law and that the law should be upheld. But it also argued that they already made enough money and they should drop their demand for the union to be recognized. It's not mentioned that the statements were gathered at a conference where only 14 of the state's more than 300 editors were present and that the 11 who had signed the report all worked for newspapers that were owned by the mining companies. Although Lee seems to have only printed things that he thought were true, about half of these bulletins had factual issues. Especially before he personally traveled to Colorado to talk to people, he got most of his information from mining operators, and he seems to have taken what they said at face value. His most egregious error was reporting the annual salary of several workers and organizers as their salaries for just nine weeks, making it look like they made a whole lot more money than they made, which suggested there was some kind of grift going on. Although he issued a correction on that, the uncorrected numbers were really widely circulated. One of the bulletins also stressed that the women and children who had been killed while taking shelter in the pit had burned or suffocated in a fire that was caused by an overturned stove and not by being shot. The implication here is that they died because of their own carelessness. This did not acknowledge that the stove had been overturned while the camp was surrounded and being fired upon. Multiple articles floating around about Ivy Lee today also claim that he just made up a lot of the information in these bulletins including saying that he accused labor organizer Mother Jones of running a brothel. If he did say this, it was somewhere other than in these bulletins, and it was also probably something that somebody from the company told him, not something he just made up himself. Unfounded allegations that Mother Jones had previously run a brothel or had otherwise done sex work date back to at least 1904, 
in a gossip magazine called Polly Pry. One of Lee's bulletins was devoted to Mother Jones, though, and it included this all-caps statement, quote, I confidently believe that most of the murders and other acts of violent crime committed in the strike region have been inspired by this woman's incendiary utterances. I feel like incendiary utterances would be a great name for an autobiography. Um, This strike ended, unsuccessfully from the miners' point of view, in December of 1914. Their union was not recognized and their demands were not met. Shortly thereafter, Ivy Lee was called to defend his work before the U.S. Commission on Industrial Relations. This was one of many appearances he made before congressional committees, commissions, and regulatory agencies that were investigating his role in possible wrongdoing. Although many of the questions he was asked implied that he had been paid to lie on behalf of the company, he insisted that everything he had done was in good faith and that any errors brought to his attention were corrected as quickly as he could. This was the beginning of years of work with the Rockefeller family, and we will talk about that and other parts of his later career after another quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, 
the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After the Colorado mine strike was over, Ivy Lee was elected director of the CFNI. In 1915, he published a book called Human Nature and the Railroads, which explored various problems within the railroad industry and how those problems might be addressed, as well as how to use crowd psychology to change public perceptions about the industry. That same year, he took a staff position as one of John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s advisors. As we have said before, the public as a whole was not a fan of the Rockefellers or of John Sr. in particular. Ivy Lee knew that it would not change public opinion if he wrote a bunch of articles telling Rockefeller's side of the story on how he became the wealthiest man in the United States. Instead, he encouraged Rockefeller to do even more philanthropy and to start publicizing it, something that Rockefeller didn't want to do because he thought that that was coarse and braggy. Lee encouraged Rockefeller to fund the building of Rockefeller Center and the restoration of Colonial Williamsburg. He wrote articles about Rockefeller's efforts to eradicate hookworm disease. He invited newsreel reporters to come to the Rockefeller home to see John Sr. at family birthday celebrations and handing out dimes to children, things that made him seem human and not like a corporate monster. Right. Lee also tried to arrange for an authorized biography to be written. This started out by scheduling a round of golf with Rockefeller and journalist William O. Inglis, and that first golf game became an article called Playing a Round of Golf with John D. Rockefeller, one of many humanizing articles about Rockefeller's golf games. 
After about 10 more years of playing golf, Inglis did write a biography, but early readers of it suggested that it was just too flattering to be taken seriously, so they didn't wind up printing it. They did eventually, some years down the road, get an authorized biography done, but at that point, Ivy Lee had passed away and was not part of the story. In 1916, Lee established a new PR firm, one that evolved over a series of names and partners over the next few years. He took on increasingly high-profile clients, many of which had troubling histories that needed to be addressed, including Phelps Dodge, Armor Meats, Anaconda Steel, and Standard Oil. And some would become more troubling later on, like American Tobacco. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given his association with the Rockefellers, Rockefeller having made a lot of his money by uh, consolidating industries, uh, Lee also advocated for collaboration among businesses rather than competition between them. He helped establish multiple institutes and industrial groups that were meant to advocate on behalf of entire industries, including the American Petroleum Institute, the International Sugar Council, and the Cotton Yarn Association. Although he became really one of the go-to people for industrial PR work, he also had some prominent detractors. Carl Sandburg called him Poison Ivy Lee, and that was a name that was then picked up by Upton Sinclair. During World War I, Ivy Lee took a full-time, unpaid position for the American Red Cross to increase the public's awareness of the Red Cross and its work and to use the Red Cross as a source of positive PR for the United States and its allies. Lee tried to resign from this position in 1918, citing, quote, certain mathematical equations I am compelled to face. But he was convinced to stay until the end of the war. Other pro bono work during his career included the United Hospital Fund of New York, the Henry Street Settlement, the Episcopal Pension Fund, and the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. After World War I was over, Lee was hired by the Transatlantic Passenger Conference to promote international travel by sea and to help that industry recover from the sinking of both the Titanic and the Lusitania. He also worked to improve Americans' opinions of Europe as a vacation destination as Europe recovered from the war. A lot of things people had heard about Europe at that point had been returning soldiers telling about what they had seen in these war-torn countries. Another client was motion picture production and distribution company, Famous Players Lasky, whose reputation was suffering due to charges of unfair business practices and various Hollywood scandals. We talked about the business practices in our two-parter on the Paramount Decrees in 2020 and the scandals in our episode on the murder of William Desmond Taylor. Lee wasn't directly involved with the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association or the adoption of the Hayes Code, but it did grow out of the approach that he was using with his film industry clients. During his career, Lee also encouraged the Guggenheim family to establish the Guggenheim Foundation. He promoted the field of aviation, including arranging promotional tours for Richard E. Byrd after he became the first person to fly over the North Pole, and Charles Lindbergh after his solo flight across the Atlantic. Both of those tours were sponsored by the Guggenheim Foundation. Some of Lee's work in the 1920s had an international focus. He helped France, Poland, and Romania get financing from international financial institutions to help with their rebuilding effort, using his PR methods to garner support. He was also a founding member of the Council on Foreign Relations when it was established in 1921. 
He didn't stop working within the U.S., though. After the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921, which is yet another previous episode of the podcast, he once again worked on the side of the mining companies to try to repair their reputations. This included printing bulletins called The Miner's Lamp and Colfax, which included such articles as Company Stores Protect the Mine Workers' Pocketbooks. That same year, he also worked on behalf of General Mills' predecessor, Washburn Crosby, promoting the character of Betty Crocker as a way to sell baking ingredients. He helped develop the name and branding for gold medal flour to imply that it had a superior quality, and he worked with the company on a cereal campaign that stressed the importance of a hearty breakfast, something we are still hearing today. (laughs) Sure are. He was still working with the Rockefellers throughout all of this. In the late 1920s, he encouraged John D. Rockefeller Jr. to fund the construction of Riverside Church. Its first pastor was Henry Emerson Fosdick, who had his own connection to Ivy Lee. Lee had personally paid for the publishing and distribution of Fosdick's influential 1922 sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win?, This sermon advocated for Christianity to be open-minded, tolerant, and intellectual, and Fosdick credited Lee's distribution of it with it having had any impact at all. Lee also handled the publicity for John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s daughter in 1924 surrounding her wedding, including issuing a wedding invitation to every major newspaper, establishing a press section at the church, and specifying what reporters were and were not allowed to take pictures of and include in their stories. In 1925, Lee wrote one of the first books on public relations called Publicity, Some of the Things It Is and Is Not. He also published The Press Today in 1929. And some of Lee's most controversial work took place in the 1920s and 30s, I feel like. A lot of what we've talked about uh, has been controversial so far, and now we're taking it to another level. During his lifetime, he made five trips to Russia and the Soviet Union, both before and after the Russian Revolution. He wrote a book called USSR, A World Enigma, in 1927, and then revised it into present-day Russia in 1928. Although he acknowledged that the USSR was a dictatorship, his treatment of people like Joseph Stalin was so favorable overall that critics accused Lee of being on the Soviet payroll. He insisted that he was not paid for any of this work, that he had pursued it out of just a personal interest. He was also a strong advocate for the U.S. to acknowledge the Soviet government and to open up trading relations. As a note, Gareth Jones, the Welsh journalist we discussed in our episode on the Holodomor recently, worked for Ivy Lee in 1931. If Lee publicly revised his opinions on Russia or Stalin after Jones's reporting, Tracy did not find that in her research. Yeah, he uh, even when they were traveling together, it seems like Jones had a much clearer idea of conditions that were affecting people than... Lee, who had a lot of really positive spin that did not talk so much about problems with things like hunger and poverty. And then, in 1929, Lee started representing the American affiliate of German chemical conglomerate IG Farben. He was paid $3,000 to $4,000 a year to work with companies like Agfa Photo and Bayer, 
But about three months after Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Lee was put on a retainer of $25,000 a year to consult for IG Farben's German headquarters. His son, James II, was also given a full-time position in Germany in support of this effort. Because of his writing about Russia, people already thought Ivy Lee was a propagandist for foreign governments. So it did not take long before he was accused of distributing Nazi propaganda. He was called to testify before the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, which was the earliest iteration of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Lee testified in a closed session on May 19, 1934. And since he was in Europe during the public hearings that followed that, his testimony was read into the public record on July 11th. The New York Times reported on this the next day under the headline, quote, Ivy Lee, as advisor to Nazis, paid $25,000 by Die Trust. A lot of the English language reporting at this point calls IG Farben the Die Trust. That's basically what the name translates to. This ran next to an article on the Night of the Long Knives titled, Goering is Blamed for Nazi Killings. In his testimony, Lee summed up his relationship with I.G. Farben this way, quote, The directors of the company told me they were very much concerned over the German relationships with the United States and antagonism toward Germany in the United States. They wanted advice as to how those relations could be improved, so they made an arrangement with me to give them such advice. Lee insisted that he had not distributed any German material of any kind in the United States and that his role with IG Farben in Germany was an advisory one. But he also talked about personally meeting with Hitler and with Minister of Propaganda Joseph Goebbels and with other Nazi Party leaders. And he also made it clear that his intent was that at least some of the advice that he gave to IG Farben's leadership would be passed along to the German government. Some writers, including biographer Ray Eldon Hybert, have said that Lee hoped his work with IG Farben would lead to Nazi Germany changing its actual policies. But his testimony before the Congressional Committee really did not suggest that. It sounds more like he was kind of telling Germany how to handle the U.S. For example, quote, I have told them that they could never in the world get the American people reconciled to their treatment of the Jews, that it was just foreign to the American mentality and could never be justified in the American opinion, and there was no use trying. In the second place, anything that savored of Nazi propaganda in this country was a mistake and ought not to be undertaken. Although the New York Times article that we referenced largely struck to quoting Lee's actual testimony, a lot of the other news reporting about this at the time was really sensationalized. A lot of it claimed that Lee was working as a Nazi propagandist in the U.S., like giving Americans Nazi propaganda. That is something that really wasn't supported by his statements or by any evidence that was introduced in the hearings. But people outside the news media were heavily critical of him as well. It wasn't just a matter of sensationalized reporting. Before meeting with Hitler, Lee contacted American Ambassador William Dodd as a courtesy. And Dodd described this conversation this way in his notes, quote, Ivy Lee showed himself at once a capitalist and an advocate for fascism. He told stories of his fight for Russian recognition and was disposed to claim credit for it. 
His sole aim was to increase American business profits. Lee contacted Dodd again after the meeting with Hitler to update him on it, and Dodd observed a shift in Nazi communications after that point. Writing of Goebbels, quote, it was plain that he was trying to apply the advice which Ivy Lee urged upon him a month ago. Later on, Dodd described Lee as, quote, the clever big business propagandist who has been trying for a year or more to sell the Nazi regime to the American public. So an important thing to note here is that while many of the Nazi parties and I.G. Farben's most egregious and horrifying acts were still to come when all of this happened, persecution and violence toward Jewish people were already ongoing. It is possible that an uninformed American who didn't have any ties to Germany or to the Jewish community might have been ignorant of what was happening in Germany. But Lee's career required him to be knowledgeable and well-read. The training program for new associates at the PR firms that he established during his career required them to read a broad range of newspapers and periodicals from all over the world, all over the political spectrum, and to travel broadly to expand their own knowledge. So this is something he would have known. His congressional testimony also makes it clear that he was aware of international concerns that Germany was rearming itself in defiance of the Treaty of Versailles. And he said that he had, quote, sent suggestions as to points which should be covered by responsible Germans, which would tend to make clear to the American people what the attitude of Germany was on the armament question. We do not know whether Lee would have recanted this work in light of what happened later. When reporters found him on vacation at the thermal baths in Baden, Germany, as this news broke, contrary to his own advice, he refused to give a statement. And then he died of a brain tumor on November 9th, 1934, just four months after all of this became public. This developed really suddenly. A month earlier, he had been at a meeting with the executive board of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and during the meeting, he had a brain hemorrhage and could not remember who he was talking to. His doctor suggested that the tumor had probably started to develop right about the time he had come under fire for his work with I.G. Farben. Yeah, there are some... Some write-ups on him as sort of a founder of the field of public relations that really try to give him a pass on all this. They're like, he was cleared of all charges of distributing propaganda. Sure, he wasn't distributing propaganda in the U.S., but he was definitely trying to tell Nazi Germany, like, how to have a better relationship with the United States. Not really seeming to... right have qualms about what was happening in Germany and how the Nazi party was treating its own people. Although the last months of Lee's life had been marked by accusations of anti-Semitism and being a Nazi propagandist, and then also a renewed focus on his most controversial PR jobs that kind of resurfaced as part of that criticism, he still had his supporters. John D. Rockefeller Jr. wrote a letter to Lee's widow, Cornelia, that said in part, quote, from the early days of my contact with your husband, it became clear to me that his point of view was the same as ours, that complete sincerity, honesty, and integrity were the fundamental principles which regulated his daily life and upon which his every action was based. What he did for us in the Colorado situation and in the general relation of our family and business interests to the public thereafter was of greatest value. 
Lee's firm kept representing the Rockefellers until John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s death. There are so many aspects of Lee's PR work that have carried through until today. Some examples. Multiple historians and climate reporters have traced today's disinformation about the climate change crisis back to groundwork that was laid by Ivy Lee. The name Guggenheim is far more associated with art and philanthropy than with the American Smelting and Refining Company. After Nelson A. Rockefeller was elected governor of New York in 1958, Drew Pearson of the Washington Post wrote that it never would have happened had Ivy Lee not connected the Rockefeller name to philanthropy and good works. So yeah, that is Ivy Ledbetter Lee, who I have a lot of feelings about some of which I'm sure we'll talk about more in Behind the Scenes. Indeed. Do you want to talk about listener mail in the meantime? I do want to talk about listener mail in the meantime. So we got an email from uh, Apurva, who wrote and said, Hi, I have a podcast about my birth town in India, the site of the biggest disaster you've never heard of, the 1984 Bhopal gas tragedy. Here's the blurb. And then uh, Apurva uh, sent the blurb that comes along with the podcast, which is, cows sometimes wander into graze in the grass surrounding Union Carbide, an abandoned American pesticide factory in Bhopal, India. More often than not, these cows end up dead, choking on the same poison that suffocated 10,000 people on December 2nd, 1984. Uh, And so this a description of the podcast goes on to describe that it's the work of Apurva Dixit and Apurva's childhood best friend, Molly Mulroy, and it's a seven-part podcast called They Knew Which Way to Run. Um, we get a lot of emails about podcasts that people are launching, and we can't typically talk about a ton of them on the show, but I wanted to talk about this one in particular um, because I was nine when this happened, and I remember it. Mm-hmm. I remember the news coverage of it it is something that has been on, like, the listener-submitted idealist for a long time, but it's also a bit more recent than we normally talk about. And it's recency and the fact that there are a lot of people who survived it who are still alive today sort of adds some complexity to whether we could do it justice. Um, so I was really, uh, really happy to learn that that uh, this podcast exists now as of when we are recording this episode. Only two episodes are out, um, and I've listened to both of those episodes. It's seven parts total, so more of them, maybe all of them, will be out by the time this episode is out. A lot of the episode's content was recorded in India with people who survived or who lost family members or who lived in the area and weren't directly affected but have memories of the after effects of it and all of that. Um, It's a really good example of how folks who have a different background and a different approach than Holly and I have can really take a part of history that would be uh, a lot more difficult for us to really do justice to. So, again, um, this is called uh, They Knew Which Way to Run, I've been listening to it on Apple Podcasts. I'm sure it's on lots of other podcast platforms as well. So new episodes come out every three weeks. So it may not, (laughs) all seven may not be out yet by the time this episode comes out, but I'm looking forward to listening to them. Also, thank you, Apoorva, for sending us this email, letting us know about your show. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcasts at iHeartRadio.com, and we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. 
And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.